So the city of Sychar, the uh, interesting thing about this city, first of all, Jesus said he had to go through Samaria. This saved him three days of going around Samaria, and if you know anything about the whole story, the Jewish people did not like the Samaritans. Several reasons why. Uh, first of all, the name Sychar means falsehood and drunkenness. It used to be called the city of Shechem, or Shechem. And several things happened in this city over the course of history in the Old Testament. First of all, let's see, number one. In Genesis chapter 34, Jacob and his family are there, and his daughter Dinah gets raped. And if you know the rest of the story, his, her brothers get mad, and uh, this young man that rapes her, his name is Shechem, and uh, he wants to take her for his wife, and they said, okay, on one condition, all of the men, you got to get circumcised. And so they say, well, okay. So while they're healing, Jacob's sons, two of the brothers, they come and they kill every man in the city. This is a shameful thing that's done. In Joshua chapter 20, verse 7, They've come out of Egypt. Time has gone by. They come out of Egypt, and they're in the promised land. And Shechem, in chapter 20, verse 7 of the book of Joshua, is designated as a city of refuge. You accidentally kill somebody, you can go to the city of refuge and live there the rest of your days without the avenger of blood coming and taking your life. So that's a good thing. The city of Shechem being a refuge city. Next thing that happens in Joshua chapter 24, verse 25. Joshua is at the end of his life, and he calls all of the people together to himself at Shechem. And they make another covenant with God. And they all promise, yes, we're going to serve God. Yes, 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 yes. That's good. We're going to serve God. And of course... It doesn't go very well. Eventually, things get crazy and they fall into idolatry and uh, move on to Judges chapter 9. Everybody remember Gideon, the mighty man of valor who's hiding, threshing wheat because the Midianites have come and, and they're pestering and pillaging the Jewish people, the, the uh, people of Israel, because they've turned to idols. And Gideon has passed away at this time in Judges chapter 9. And a man named Abimelech comes. And he has 70 brothers. And the people of Shechem want him to be their king. This is the first king in Israel. So what does he do? He kills his own brothers, 70 of his brothers. Another shameful event has happened in this place. In 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 30, after Solomon the king has died. Fast forward, Solomon's died, and uh, the prophet Ahijah comes and gives a man named Jeroboam a word from God. Your kingdom will be established. God's about to split the kingdom at this point in time. And what does he do? Instead of relying on God... Jeroboam sets up two golden calves 
one in the southern section of uh, the uh, kingdom that's now divided, and the other one in the northern kingdom and Dan. And the Bible says that Jeroboam causes Israel to sin more than anyone else has ever done. What happened, uh, back up just to uh, actually, he gets this promise in chapter 11, and he flees to um, Egypt and then finds out Solomon's dead, so he comes back. He gets invited back, Jeroboam. And Rehoboam is Solomon's son. He's about to be crowned king. But God's design is to take the kingdom from Jeroboam or Rehoboam and keep a son of David on the throne there who was Rehoboam. So he comes and he's going to be crowned king. This is a great honor for the city of Shechem. And he's going to be crowned king and he, and he asks you know, some advice and he gets some really bad advice. And tells the uh, people, you know, my father Solomon, he taxed you terribly. Well, I'm going to be even worse than him. And so the ten northern tribes, they say, you know what? We're not going to follow you. You're not going to be our king. See you later. Bye. And he runs back to Jerusalem for his life. And they crown Jeroboam as the king. And then Jeroboam causes Israel to sin more than anyone else this is the city that Jesus is now sitting outside at the well. He's weary. I mean, you know, Jesus was a human being like us. He was God and a human being. And he's weary, and he sits there, and he's sitting at the well. And his disciples go into the town, and uh, they're going to uh, buy some food. And meanwhile, a woman comes out uh, from the city to get water. She comes by herself which is interesting because in Genesis chapter 24, Abraham's servant comes to the city of Nahor. He stops at the well there in the city of Nahor looking for a wife for Isaac. At the well is where courtship, I suppose you would call it, took place. And so this woman, and in verse 11 of chapter 24, that it's the time of the evening that Abraham's uh, servant gets there, the time when women go out to draw water. In John chapter 4, verse 6, Jesus there is there at noon. So there's something unusual about this woman coming out by herself at noon instead of in the evening with all the other women. And in verse 15, where Pastor Wayne uh, stopped last week, he tells her, he, gives, he asks her for a drink of water and tells her, you know, I've got water that's better than this. And she says, well, how are you going to get it? Because the well's deep and you don't have anything to get the water out. And he says, I'm not talking about natural things, he says, basically. And she says in verse 15, well, sir, she addresses him politely, even though the Samaritans and Jews didn't like each other. She says, give me this water so I will not be thirsty and get this, this is an even better benefit. I won't have to come out here to draw water. I'll have this water in me all the time. Anybody ever get thirsty? If you work outdoors and you sweat a lot, by the time you start feeling thirsty, you're already dehydrated. And the, and the first organ in your body that's affected by dehydration is your brain. So if you're more confused than normal, it's because you're dehydrated. I remember one time I was 
trying to do some math numbers and, uh, you know, get some lines laid out on a concrete slab and not drop things. <laughs> and I couldn't figure it out. It drove me nuts because I was dehydrated. So he says to her, okay, I'll give you this water. Tell you what, go call your husband. <clears throat> and we'll pick up the story here. Oops, wrong button. That's the laser. There we are. Pick up the story. Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. Why did he say this? According to Matthew Henry's commentary, because he was Jewish and he was a man and she was a woman, the rabbis weren't even allowed to talk to their own daughters or wives in public. So this is an unusual thing. She, he says, get your husband and bring him here. Legally, according to Dake's Bible commentary, he may able, Jesus may speak further with her if her husband is there. But she says, oh, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, true that. <laughs> true that. I know that. You are right in saying I have no husband. Jesus says, you know, you're telling the truth. That's amazing. And then he goes on, he says, You've had five husbands. She's like a movie star or something back then. <laughs> five husbands. Divorce was common back then. I read somewhere that if your wife didn't put enough salt on your food, you could divorce her. <laughs> One time my mother-in-law told me uh, she remarried later on in life and uh, her <laughs> they were getting old, her and their new husband. <laughs> and she told me one time he, uh, she cooked some food, and he said, I'm still hungry. Make some more food. And he, she refused. And <laughs> she said, he said, I'm going to call the cops on you. <laughs> so she said, go ahead, she told him. And he did. <laughs> and now 911, and the 911 operator said to him, well, sir, um, if you have some money, you can just go to a restaurant or something. <laughs> but this woman has had five husbands. And, Jesus tells her, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. And uh, you know, so shacking up is not nothing new. And, and I'm just amazed that they did this back then. It was bad enough she's been divorced five times. Who knows why? Maybe she's repulsive. Maybe she's ugly. Who knows? But now she's living in sin. Notice, he didn't say, go get your husband and the kids. Maybe she didn't have any children. Maybe she was barren, and that's why she was divorced all these times. Doesn't say. But, he says, the one you have now is not your husband. You're living in sin. You're living in adultery. I remember talking to a young man at work one time, and he told me, so I, he's living, you know, with his, the father, mother of his, Sons, and I said, so you're living in sin? I says, oh, well, thanks a lot. The last time I talked to him, now he's serving God. Praise God. Jesus tells her this not to embarrass her. He has a purpose in, in all of this, saying that the one you're living with now is not your husband. Praise God. So what does she say? 
The woman says to her, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <clears throat> She's kind of surprised. <laughs> How did you know that? She doesn't, it doesn't record the whole conversation. There may have been more that they said to each other. Who knows? It's not all written down. But according to Strong's concordance, because she uses this word, sir, it's a respectful title. I've heard stories of, of people who, uh, the, the preacher, the man of God, tells them stuff that he knows because God told them. And it says, I perceive. I perceive. This word is really interesting to me. It's the Greek word in the Greek New Testament, theoreo, where we get the word theory from. It literally means to be a spectator of, to discern, or experience, or acknowledge, to behold, to consider, to look on, or to see. It indicates the woman's earnest contemplation of our Lord, according to Vine's expository dictionary. Jesus has her attention. Praise God. Does Jesus have your attention? Amen? Jesus should have our attention all the time. And what does she say? She says, I have a question. You might know the answer to this since you're a prophet. What it literally means is not somebody who knows or predicts the future, but somebody who has God-given insight into a current situation. He touched her conscience. Whoa, this guy knows something about me. We're total strangers. As a, one, one evangelist I heard, he used the phrase, I don't know you from Adam, do I? No, no, never met in our life. Well, here's what God told me to tell you. One time we had... Uh, a service, and after the service, or the beginning of the service, asked if anybody had need of prayer. And this one woman in the front, she said, yes. Uh, she said something. What she said, later on she told me, what I said is I want to pray for my neighbor. But what I heard is she said that her sinuses were bothering her. So at the end of the service, I said, did you say your sinuses were bothering you? And her eyes got this big, and she said, well, no, but yes, they are. I said, well, would you like me to pray for you and God will heal you. And she said, yes, yes. Is this your husband? She said, come on up. As soon, she said, as soon as we laid our hands on her and started to pray for her, sinuses instantly cleared up. It's because God told me her sinuses are bothering her. Praise God. She had earnestly asked for living water, but now Jesus has her attentions, her, excuse me, her attention. And so instead of saying, yes, that's right, um, I'm living in sin, what do we do about it? She has a question. She evades. <laughs> whoa, whoa, I don't want to talk about that. Anybody have anything embarrassing in your life that you don't want anybody to know? Just keep it between you and God for now. Praise God. Hallelujah. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, it describes chapter 1, no, excuse me, Isaiah <clears throat> chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, talking about Jesus, says these words, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge 
and of the fear of the Lord. So obviously, this woman, she knows something when she says, I perceive that you are a prophet. Jesus had the Spirit of the Lord upon him, and the Spirit of knowledge gave him this insight. Hallelujah. A prophet. In Acts chapter 3, verse 22, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. Not only does she say, I perceive you are a prophet, keep in mind that they were all looking for that prophet that Moses had predicted. It's also, I looked up the word prophet, and it means someone through whom God speaks. If you're familiar with Numbers chapter 11, verse 29, there are some elders of the people went with Moses, and, and God puts his spirit on them. And somebody comes from the camp. Moses, Moses, there's two guys in the camp. They're prophesying. Stop them. And Moses says, oh, yeah, that's, that's not supposed to happen. Moses says, would to God that all of God's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Claim that promise for yourself, dearly beloved, that God would put his spirit on you. Amen. Praise God. She has a legitimate question. Jesus doesn't say, wait, 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 wait. That's not the problem where people worship. Jesus doesn't say that. That's not what I was talking about, Jesus says. He doesn't say that. He says, he acknowledges her question. The question is, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. Does anybody know what mountain this was? Mount Gerizim. Anybody remember in the Old Testament, they stood on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. On Mount Gerizim, they pronounced the promises for serving God. On Mount Ebal, they pronounced the curses for disobeying God. And so they're saying, well, we're, we're worshiping on this mountain, Mount uh, Gerizim, where the blessing was pronounced. But you Jews, some uh, Bibles put in there, you Jews say that in Jerusalem, Mount Moriah is where they worship in Jerusalem. Does anybody know what happened on Mount Moriah with Abraham and Isaac? Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. So that's where they're worshiping, in Jerusalem. They both have legitimate... Man, that, that sounds like a, Isaac was going to be sacrificed. Oh, let's sacrifice, let's worship God on that mountain. Wait, the blessings were pronounced from this mountain. Let's worship on this mountain. Everyone worships something. Amen? Some people worship sports. See them going nuts. Oh, they scored a goal! <laughs> I was making fun of uh, somebody the other day. <clears throat> we had the television on and this famous tennis player said, Oh, I made millions of dollars playing a game! And the <laughs> that just blows my circuits. I'm sorry. <laughs> Million, $245 million are playing some football player to play a game. 22 guys the size of giants chasing a pigskin around a field. All that money. Some of them use their money for good, but to me it just, <laughs> that much money? For what? 
I work hard. I've got four broken fingers, one broken rib, three hernias from the work that I do. And I don't have millions of dollars in the bank. <laughs> Everyone worships something. So, the Samaritans, they believed, according to Matthew Henry's commentary, they followed the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, it says the Lord's chosen place of worship was not yet known. God was going to tell them where. In 1 Kings chapter 9, and verse 3, later on, Solomon has built the temple. God appears to him. And in verse 3, God speaks to him and says, I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. But that temple got destroyed. And it was a great tragedy that the Jewish people still celebrate today. Well, they don't celebrate. They remember it. That that temple was destroyed. When they laid the foundation after coming back from captivity in Babylon 70 years after the temple's destruction, there were people there who remembered the first temple. And the Bible says that there was such great rejoicing and there was also weeping among those that had seen the glory of the old temple that you couldn't tell which was which. It was so loud. Everyone worships something. The Lord's chosen place of worship Anybody know what McDonald's uh, motto is? Not only do they serve hamburgers, they deal in real estate. Location, location, location. Location is everything. And so it is, according to this woman. Location, what location? Where should we worship God? You Jews say this, we say that. So Jesus doesn't directly answer her question. Jesus said to her, you have to worship in Jerusalem. I'm sorry, there's no question. No, no, he doesn't say that at all. He says, woman. And this is not a derogatory. He's about to give her a revelation. Remember, he told his mom, he called his mom woman. She says, they have no wine. Woman, what does that have to do with me? He's going to give her a revelation. She's going to get a revelation here. Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Something's going to happen. Something's going to change. There's going to be a revolution in how and where and why and when will you worship God. He tells her, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We Jewish people worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus doesn't answer the question directly. He tells her, we know, we have. The Bible says uh, what this literally means according to the commentaries is that we worship what we know. We have perfect knowledge. We know exactly. The Jewish people or the, the Israelites were unique in their day back then because they were the only religion or the only people group that worshiped one God. Everybody else had multiple gods. Some religions have millions of gods. I would say it would be a little confusing. 
Here's an interesting note. <clears throat> Jesus, notice he says, we. So he includes himself. So how could Jesus worship God? If he's God, how can he worship God? Because he was Jewish while he walked on the earth. We know salvation is of the Jews. We know that they know that because they, the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 2, that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. This word salvation is a Greek word. I'm thinking I can pronounce it correctly. Soteria comes from another Greek word, sotare, which means a deliverer. And it's particularly referenced to Jesus or Christ the Savior. It means to rescue. It means to defend. Hallelujah. How many know we have an enemy that we need to defense against? Thank God for the Lamb of God that He's our defender. We worship what or who we know. Praise God. And He says, the hour is coming. And He says again in verse 23, but the hour is coming. And kaboom! Is now here! Ba-ba-boom! A new thing! Hallelujah! You don't have to worry about where you worship. Anytime, anywhere, any place, you can worship God. Hallelujah! Location is no longer important. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God wants to be worshipped because He's God. God is spirit. Hallelujah. The stress, according to Matthew Henry, is on the state of mind. According to Dake's commentary, it's worshiping with your whole soul, your mind, your feelings, your emotions and desires. That's why we have a time of worship when we sing. While you're singing, if you know the word, it's not Christian karaoke. If you know the words, close your eyes, lift your hands, Think on these things, the Bible says. Excuse me. Hallelujah. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says these words. Great indeed. And you also, Mr. Dake says, we're to worship without controversies, without ceremonies, rituals. It's not a ritual. It's not, you know, we don't get saved by rituals. The only thing that saves us is trusting that the blood of Jesus washes us, cleanses us from all sin, and makes us right with God. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. The mystery has been now, was hidden, but it's now revealed. God was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. God walked the earth. Think about this. Here's Jesus sitting on the well, and a woman comes up, and she's talking to God in the flesh. <laughs> There's a, a commentary uh, I read, uh, you know, <laughs> later on the disciples come up and are amazed that Jesus is talking with a woman, and the commentator says, they should be amazed that Jesus is talking with them. <laughs> God in the flesh, talking to them. Wow. Just amazing. Can God become a man? That's a big controversy nowadays. How could God have any children? That's impossible. Well, it would be a miracle if he had a son. 
<laughs> the Bible says that God has eyes, ears, a heart, hands, a back, fingers, feet, a mouth, a tongue, a voice, breath, a countenance. He even has clothes. He eats. He sits on a throne. He walks and he rides and has been seen by many in the Old Testament. Stephen saw him in Acts chapter 7 in the New Testament and in Acts and in Revelation chapter 4. John sees him. But Jesus says, those who worship God must, it's not a suggestion, it's a requirement, must worship in spirit. And some Bibles put this spirit as the Holy Spirit and truth. The Father is seeking. Just like Jesus said, you must be born again. You must worship in spirit and in truth. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, it says, we worship God in spirit. Or another translation says, we worship God by the Spirit of God. Glory and honor to the King of kings. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. So this is the Jewish uh, word Messiah, which means the anointed one. And this is the Greek word Christ, which also means the anointed one. When he comes, he will tell us all things. We'll stop right here just a minute. He will tell us all things. <clears throat> one commentator says a, a better translation is he will explain everything to us. Well, he certainly told her a few things. You have had five husbands and you're now living in sin. There's a lot we don't know. Can you say amen? I know sometimes it feels like my brain is about this big inside a big empty boxcar because there's so much to know. Praise God. I know that he's coming. How does she know that? Because they believed Moses and his five books. And Moses specifically said, like we quoted earlier, God's going to raise up a prophet like me. Hear him. The Jewish people today are still waiting for the Messiah. She gets an exciting revelation in spite of her lifestyle. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Here's, here's that, an, uh, an example of where Jesus in John's Gospels tells her, I am. Just like Moses told or uh, God told Moses at the burning bush, I am. This is a revelation to her. Even though she's living in sin, Jesus decides to reveal this truth to her. Glory to God. When we come to church and we worship God, we should expect to experience the presence of God. Just like Jacob in chapter 28, verse 16 he dreams of the ladder going up and down. And, and we know earlier that um, there was a reference to Jesus as being that connection. And he has this dream in a place called Bethel, the house of God. And he says these words, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. What a blessing to be able to be in a place and know that the presence of God is here with us. He will explain everything to us. Chapter 1, verse 18, the Bible says, John writes and says that he, talking about Jesus, has made him, God the Father, known. Just then, his disciples come back. 
and they see him, they marveled that he was talking with a woman of all things and a Samaritan woman. But no one said, who are you? And Jesus, of course, says, no one of consequence. <laughs> no, he doesn't. <laughs> I'm sorry. We watched the movie The Princess Bride here last night. and I, I just love that movie. <laughs> Jesus tells her, get used to disappointment. No, he doesn't. He, the, the disciples marveled. Meanwhile, <laughs> and they say, they, they, what are you? Why are you talking to her? What in the world are you doing, Jesus? He talked with them. They marveled that he talked with a woman, Jameson and Fawcett and Browns. They should marvel that he talked with them. <laughs> she left her water jar. I always thought this was interesting. Some Bible commentators say she left the water jar to give us an example that you leave your old lifestyle and you go start living a new lifestyle. I think she either just forgot it or she left it there for Jesus to have a drink of water. In any event, she went away into the town. She also might have left it there because she could probably walk faster or run without it. Water is heavy. Meanwhile, and Jesus, she runs back to the town. She's so impressed. Excuse me. She's so impressed that God talked to her and she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. She was impressed that God, that Jesus, first of all, knew of all about her. Second of all, that he graciously tells her, I'm the Messiah. He didn't tell that to the Jews directly when he was in Jerusalem just recently. But he tells this woman, I'm the Messiah. And she gets so excited, she runs back to town. But instead of telling everybody, I found the Messiah. In John chapter 1, verses 41 and 45, Andrew says to Peter, we found the Messiah. Philip says to Nathaniel, we have found that prophet. But she tells them, can this be the Christ? You guys decide for yourselves. Find out for yourselves. This word, come and see, is a Greek word, Ida, which means to know for yourself. She was a successful witness. She told other people about Jesus, and the whole city, it says, pretty much, into the town. They went out of the town and were coming to him. Whole town. She just told, hey, check this out. I met Jesus. I'll never forget the look on a guy's face one time. That is some social gathering and, and uh, it's alcohol all over the place. And he said, Joe, you don't drink? And I looked him in the eye and I said, no, Jesus Christ set me free. And he looked at me like, what? It, <laughs> I don't know what went on in his mind, but it's like, yeah, Jesus Christ set me free. I was an alcoholic. And I know for myself, Hallelujah. Let's go on. And out of the town they were coming to her. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, I mean, back at the well, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. We went into the town to buy food for you. Now you're not eating? Come on, what's going on here? 
heat. Actually, one commentator said this is an expression of their love for him. We went and got you something. We got your favorite whatever. You don't want to eat? And he tells them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So, they don't get it. Here's one of these instances. Again, if you read the Gospels, the, a lot of times the disciples don't get it. Like Jesus walking on the water. They'd already been through a storm and He calmed the waves and the sea. And then another, He's walking on the water. He's going to pass them by. So you guys on the other side, remember what happened last time you were in the boat and we were in a storm? You guys take care of it, but they don't get it. They're scared to death. Oh, we're drowning. We're sinking. <laughs> Don't you guys remember? I was in the boat, and I told you guys, you have to have faith. You know, tell the wind to cease. But they don't, they don't get it. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but there's times where <laughs> I don't get it. But we keep on pressing on. They urged him. They see the natural and the physical, but not the spiritual. In chapter 4, verse 6, he was weary, but now Jesus is refreshed. He said, I'm not really hungry anymore. Why? Because he was doing something for God. If, you, any, if you've been living for God for a while, and you tell somebody about Jesus, and, and you feel the presence of God get there, and, and the people are open, or maybe they're not, but you're able to speak to them about the things of God. It's refreshing. It's invigorating. And here's Jesus. Huh, I'm refreshed. I told somebody about the things of God and she received it. Whoops. <clears throat> Pardon me. She received it. Not only that, she went to the town and the whole town's coming out. Look at that, guys. Look, look, look. That's awesome. And he's, he says, I'm not really hungry anymore. And of course, the disciples, they don't get it. Did somebody bring him something to eat while we were gone? They, all they can think about is the natural. Hey, you know, <clears throat> we were hungry and Jesus was hungry and somebody must have brought him something. No. He got excited because he said, my meat, my nourishment is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The will of God is for people to get saved. The work of God is once they get saved to instruct them and to continue uh, keeping them saved and helping them go on to live for God. <clears throat> Sent him to accomplish or finish the work. Jesus finished his work on the cross when he gave up the ghost. He says, the Bible is quoted in, and with a loud voice, a voice of triumph. It is finished. Paid in full. I did it. Not like, oh, it's finished. That's never occurred to somebody in Hollywood that that was a victory shout. Yes! It's done! Hallelujah! Beat the devil. Amen? Praise God. He finished his work, but we have work to do. In Acts chapter 3, verse 9, Peter and John, they go into the temple to pray. And there's a lame man sitting there. And he's asking for alms. 
hey, guys, can you give me a handout? We don't have any money, but what we got, we'll give you. And in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And the lame man gets up and leaps and jumps. And he hadn't been able to do that. And he's happy. He's excited. And of course, they get arrested for it, which is dumb. Smith Wigglesworth, I read somewhere, was kicked out of Germany for practicing medicine without a license because he was praying for people and God was healing them. Praise God. And John and Peter, they're going to the temple and a crowd comes up. Wow, what's going on? And Peter preaches. And in verse 19, he says, Repent therefore and be converted because we didn't do this. It was Jesus, the Messiah, who healed this man. And be converted that your sins may be blotted out. I like white out. I make a lot of writing mistakes. And, and I've got, especially on my time card, so I can just take this thing and just cover up what was on there, blot it out and put the correct thing on there. That your sins may be blotted out. So that, listen to this, times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Times of refreshing would come from the presence of the Lord. Like I was saying earlier, when you're telling somebody about Jesus, and Jesus says, my food, my refreshment, hallelujah, is from the presence of God. Then he goes on to say, back up. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? One commentary I read said that this is like a proverb they had. It was an encouragement, a saying, to encourage those who are going out to sow seeds. Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6 says these words, Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul writes, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Oops, wrong button. There we go. In comes the harvest. Look, look at what? Here comes everybody from the town. Here comes the harvest. Look, look, look. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white. They're ready to harvest. Here they come. You guys, here's your opportunity. Here's our opportunity to advance the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. The fields are already ready for harvest. And then he goes on to say, already the one who reaps is receiving wages or a reward and gathering fruit or souls for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. When people get saved, it is such a blessing. Hallelujah. The Bible says, Jesus said that there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over how many righteous men. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. Just like I read in 1 Corinthians chapters 3, verses 5-6 through 6, about planting and sowing. God bringing the increase. Then Jesus said, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. What's that mean? 
<clears throat> means John the Baptist had come before them and prepared the way. Others labored. You're receiving a reward. John the Baptist, the other disciples, Moses and the prophets. If you read your Old Testament, Moses and the prophets, that's part of that labor, the seed that's planted. Hallelujah. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, talking about the oracles of God given to the Jewish people, it was written and revealed and preached for you and I. We know that Messiah is coming. The Old Testament sowed the seeds. The New Testament reaps the harvest. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 through 38 says, Jesus was moved with compassion. It's also um, recorded in Luke chapter 10, verse 2. And he says, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Does anybody know who William Booth was? He's the founder of the Salvation Army. He was a Methodist minister, he lived in England. He went looking after the worst of the worst. Every time I see all these homeless people, especially in my neighborhood, breaks my heart. The other day, I took my car to the mechanic and I walked home. And as I was walking home, I walked through the alley behind my house. And as I got to my house, I stopped and I was uh, doing some pruning of the vegetation outside the yard. And then my gate was locked. But this young man came up with a backpack and was obviously homeless, asked me if I had any water with me. And I said, well, no, I don't have any. And after he left, I thought, you know what? I could have just walked around the front and went in the house and got him a bottle of water or two. What was I thinking? And then God spoke to me and said, Jeff, didn't you just preach about the living water and coming up inside? You, you could have used it at a, as an illustrated sermon for him. God help me to take advantage. William Booth is quoted. He's got like 65 really good quotes. <clears throat> One of them about music. Why should the devil have all the best tunes? One of them about educating his workforce for saving souls. He said, if I had my choice, I wouldn't send you to school. I'd send you to hell for five minutes and you'd come back real soul winners. What his most famous quote is this. Not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come here. Then look Christ in the face whose mercy you have professed to obey and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances and money in the march to publish his mercy to the world. Wednesday afternoon, somebody pulled in front of a motorcycle down on Fairview Avenue, right by on Prince Road, right by my house, and the motorcyclist drove into the, by, the vehicle and was killed. 
Five people were killed in wrecks in Tucson between August 3rd, 12th to the 31st. Two pedestrians, one a hit and run, two on motorcycles, and one in a two-car accident. God, help us to keep eternity in mind as we worship in spirit and in truth. This earth, this world is not all there is. We're going to stand before God someday.